Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. Up first, he might hit me with a might token. It's Matt Morgan. Joey, did you know that Dolly Parton came out with her own diet? Uh, No, I'm delighted. Yeah, it really made my friend Joe lean. (laughs) Wow. Uh, Well, so wait, my name is Joe. Are you are you referring to am I Jolene? Am I Jolene, Jolene, Jolene? You, you could be. If, if you get on the diet, you could be Joe Lean or Lean Joe. Wow. I have learned things today, including stuff I didn't know about myself. The, the problem is you have to work from nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's no good. I can't. Maybe I won't sign up for this after all. All right. Up next, he won't proliferate, but he will amateurliferate. It's Dana Roach. Uh, that was a great joke, Mac, and I, I, I appreciate that little bit of humor here. I had a rough day. I found out I'm colorblind. Oh, no. The news, news just came out of the purple. I was not ready for it at all. Stop. Oh, oh no. <laughs> wow. Oh, oh, clever. I, I read that joke from, from the back of your hand. <laughs> oh, oh, well, I appreciate you guys. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Dana, do you mind telling us what it is that we're going to be tackling in this week's episode? We are talking about deck synergy. Yes, synergy, that nebulous term, what it means in EDH, and honestly, what makes it so hard to pin down? Because I feel like a lot of people talk about synergy and it's like, I, I don't know, it means a lot of different things to a lot of people. So I guess we're just going to kind of put synergy under the microscope and examine what all that's about and what we can actually properly learn when we investigate it a little bit more deeply. Uh, but before we get into that topic, we got some shout outs to do. First, I'd like to shout out Chase, also known as Manicurves, for the help of editing the show. You can find them on Twitter at Manicurves. We're ecstatic to tell you that EDH Rec has also partnered with Coalesce Apparel and Design. Coalesce has an amazing line of magic-inspired apparel, and if you've ever wanted EDH Rec shirts or hoodies, you can now go browse the EDH Rec collection. Head to Coalesce and use code EDH Rec for 10% off your order. That's code EDH Rec. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by liking, subscribing to this video on YouTube, subscribing on your podcast app, leaving a review. That also always helps if you want to do that on your local podcast app or on Spotify. Or you can go over to patreon.com slash EDHRecCast, where you can support us that way as well. And it's just a nice way to get yourself a little something extra while also supporting the show, whether it's access to our patron-only Discord, you can see all the episodes a day early, all of that and more over at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast, including the weekly shout out. So this week we're going to give a very special shout out to Kelsey Ito. We see that you uh, made your way over to Patreon and subscribed, and we just definitely appreciate the support. So Kelsey Ito, thank you so much for your support. We definitely appreciate it. We see. I see see. what you were doing there, Matt. (laughs) You were finding a much more subtle dad joke for the Patreon shout out, but you were still getting it in there. I spotted it. I see what you're up to, sir. None of this escapes me. I I just, I feel so Kelsey-ed right now with my jokes. No, Kelsey is, that's the, the other command. Yes, I, the oh, I know what I did. Don't you worry. <laughs> yeah, the Mardu experience. You don't have to explain my joke to me. <laughs> but it's funnier when you explain the joke, Matt. All right, let's get into our okay. topic. 
we are talking about synergy and uh, just how complicated it can sometimes be in the ways that it makes commander games sometimes a bit more nebulous. It's a, kind of an abstract situation and we kind of want to like concretize it in any ways that we can because it's difficult to pin down. Dana, you had actually proposed this as a topic. So how about we pass things right off to you and we just start off with whatever's on your mind when it comes to commander and synergy. Sure. So the the thing that kind of brought this up to me uh, initially is the the never ending power level conversation we kind of get in Commander where you're just trying to figure out what the best way to have that conversation is about how strong your deck is before you begin a pod with strangers. And the one thing that I've really noticed that makes it most difficult, at least for me, to evaluate my deck's power level is how much synergy is in the deck. So like you can take a deck with a pile of fairly innocuous cards um, and that deck might look like it's relatively benign in terms of power level um, or at least look like it's the same power level as someone else's you know pile of similarly powered cards but the way those cards work together can vastly increase how powerful and effective that deck is compared to that other deck of similar cards and that's what makes it, I, I think, <clears throat> particularly if you're like an entrenched player who has been, you know, who has decks that are old or at the very least has decks that that are filled with cards that you know really well how they work. Um, your decks tend to be very synergistic in a way that like maybe a new player's decks decks aren't just by virtue of experience. Um, so, so again, so, that, so that's where things get really challenging, I think. This deck is a pile of cards. But it's much more powerful than it might look like, and it's easy to make that mistake when you're talking about power level. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> like there are a lot of very fantastic, individually powerful cards out there. Your Consecrated Sphinxes, your Elish Norns, your all of those. But no one makes a deck that is just consisting of those, you know? Like, it's rare for you to see a deck list and all it is is just a bunch of the 20 or $50 cards that are in the format. Like, we all know that we need some of those commons and those uncommons that are doing slight little harmony things within the deck list. And if you look over a deck list online and you see a bunch of those 20 or $50 cards, you might be led to believe that therefore that deck is like uber mega powerful. But in practice, it might not actually be that way at all. Like you were saying, it could easily be the case that like a $25 deck or a $50 deck can totally trounce a deck that costs like six or seven or $800 just because of the way that those cards all actually interact together, as opposed to cards that are just individual standalone powerhouses. It, right, and, and I, th I think particularly the amount of cards we get these days even makes that more of a factor than it once was. You mentioned Consecrated Sphinx. Hmm. There's no card that's came out that does really like what Consecrated Sphinx does that's stronger than Consecrated Sphinx. That card is is just as much of a bomb as it was today as it was six or seven years ago. Hmm. But those little, like, not exciting pieces that interact with one another... There's been a ton of those that have came out that are better than the previous non-interactive pieces. Um, in, in, and so like your, your deck that's built around a particular theme or synergy just works, I think, way better than it once did compared to a pile of good cards five or six years ago. And, and I ran into this fairly recently. Um, you know, when I first built my Enchantress deck, which is a Sagarda Host of Hurons deck, way back in like Return to Ravnica era block. So we're talking like eight-ish years ago or so. It's one of the first decks I built. Um, and I remember 
running into someone at my LGS that also had a cigar to deck that was kind of a good stuff deck. It was just running like basically any good white or green creature in the deck. There was no real plan other than to ramp and play big beaters. And my deck definitely felt outclassed compared to that cigar to deck filled with the Sun Titans and the Avengers of Zendikars of the world. Um, However, in the intervening amount of time, we've gotten a gazillion really good pieces for an Enchantress deck. Mm. And I fairly recently ran into another Sigarda Host of Hurons Good Stuff deck at my LGS that looked very similar to that one I had ran into many, many years ago. And there was just no longer, no, no longer a comparison at all. The amount of synergy in my Enchantress deck that we've gotten since then compared to that, that, that Good Stuff deck, it, it, it just has raced past it in power level. Well, and this kind of narrates a point too. That And so Dana, I, I guess I'm kind of agreeing with something you said. So Joey, I guess the question to you is, have you noticed maybe that five years ago, when, when the podcast first started, for example, hmm. you could look at the average list on EDHREC for any given commander. And if you just use the average list, we often said, don't use the average list because it's just going to be a bunch of just random good cards. Hmm. But to Dana's point, if you did that now, the average deck list is going to be much more refined for the average commander mm. than it was significantly, you know, a few years ago. So, Joey, have you noticed that at all in just your general researchings on EDH rack? That ooh, that is a an interesting and a tough question uh, to answer. Um, sure, because you know when it comes to the average, it is it is fairly broad. Uh, yeah, yeah, but like I do the upping the average series on the EDH rack YouTube channel, which folks should definitely check out if you haven't. By the way, it's way way cool. Um, and I take the average deck list as compiled by the data on EDH rack, and I want to take it from a good start to a great start. And there have certainly been, I feel like more frequently, there have been some commanders that I feel like I just don't need to do a whole lot of tweaking to them because they're kind of amazing the way that they are and that is especially the case i noticed for decks that are like pre-con commanders like what was it that party time deck for example with barakos and folk hero oh man that deck is so much fun right out of the box and because of the way that that deck is interacting with itself because of the the fantastic synergies that are already present within the list i don't feel like there's a whole lot of room for me to change things aside from suggesting i guess like i don't know if you have the budget for it teferi's protection's a good card right i mean sure but like you know the deck already is doing so many things that are so concentrated that i feel like yeah you know that's actually this this average deck list is feeling really really dang good there are certainly other exceptions to this there's always stuff that you can do to improve and change upon an average deck list and average is in fact only an average and you need to find something that tailors more to the type of game you want to play but overall probably the answer is yes at the very least i feel it most when it comes with the pre-con situation i feel like i sense it there more than anything but i, I don't know if that's a proper answer to your question yeah I, I definitely think at least in in personal experience i definitely feel like out in the wild i, I run into decks that are focused around a plan or a theme way more than i once did i mean it was probably like when i first was playing commander again we're talking eight years ago um it was probably maybe even a 50-50 split between like a deck that was just a commander and a bunch of, you know, really good cards that were shuffled in and it was just trying to win via outvaluing you with a bunch of beaters or something mm -hmm. versus a deck that was built around doing a specific thing. I would say today, I mean, it's 90-10. It's, you know, way more often than not, the person's deck is trying to do a specific thing and almost all the cards in the deck are geared around doing that thing. 
Yeah. And and this kind of goes back to the uh, we had an episode about like powerhouse commons and there are like every set. I feel like we're getting even more of those. And to me, I feel like a heart of synergy is also showing up in some of those fantastic commons and uncommons that we got. Like what is that new experimental augury card, which is basically an anticipate and you also proliferate like, yeah, that's going to be way, way cool. I, I absolutely love that thing. And the more of those types of commons that we have that can fit into certain strategies, if it's infect or plus one counters or whatever, like I feel like that is what allows for these synergies to blossom even even further because they're happening at all rarities now. So to throw something to, to you guys that we talked about previously, um, like like Matt, has, is that something you've run into where you, you found it's kind of tricky to judge power level because your decks are so synergistic now compared to how they were? So like the collection of cards you have performs better than the individual cards would make you indicate they would. I think so, but that's also partly because that's where I've gotten to with my deck building lately. I, I've gotten away from throwing in a bunch of just, okay, here's just good cards in these colors. And I've tried to build more around a theme or a certain strategy. So yes, they've they've synergized a little bit well as far as just they work better with each other than they would in the typical deck. But it's almost kind of by intent. So I, I don't know if that's really a, a good <laughs> a good answer because um, I've definitely been been mindful about that specifically. So yeah, I I, I guess <laughs> that, that's the thing about this, right? Like this is a surprisingly difficult idea, I think, to like actually pin down. Like I I feel like the basic idea of like oh synergy is that we don't just want a two plus three equals five. With a synergy, we want it to be two times three equals six. Like we want the value that our creatures are providing to become exponential and they compound upon each other and all of that. But like it, it's surprisingly weird to pin that down and i think it's precisely because of the way that synergy works like you can identify an individually powerful card by just looking at it but when you look at just at like one random common one random elf for example on its own it's not going to look that great and it's always within the context of so many other things that those synergies finally start to actually reveal themselves to you and so this like i don't know this feels like a surprisingly difficult thing to discuss and of course to evaluate so for me dana at least the answer is Yes, I absolutely find it hard to communicate. Yeah, here's what the deck usually does versus here's what the deck can do sometimes. And I, you know, those synergies might not happen all of the time. I might not have the one plus one counter becomes five becomes a billion or whatever that can happen in a deck. And so I'm tempted to say, here's something that the deck can do when I'm discussing power level, but it doesn't always do that. So I don't want to be disingenuous either way. And that's what makes it hard for me. It's very much that analogy about how like the single stick is easy to break, but like a bundle of sticks together is much more difficult <laughs> because those those things that you, like when you the more of those little tiny single sticks you add to the bundle, the stronger it gets, and and that's a very difficult thing to kind of first of all be aware of how many you've added, and in second of all, um, you know, be aware of like just how strong the to continue the metaphor the bundle has gotten. One card we talk about a lot um, is liquid metal torque. Mm. I think we've all put that in a bunch of decks and have a bunch of stories about like situations where liquid metal torque has changed an outcome of the game because it's what you turn something into an artifact or enchantment and blow it up in a way you couldn't normally have or or whatever. You know, say you have something that gives hexproof to artifacts, it's why you change something into an artifact. Um, so it's so like that's a, a, a hidden synergy kind of that you've added to your deck that's made it slightly better. And like once you add half a dozen of those kind of things, hey, now we're a bunch of us are going to add Mycosynth Gardens to decks that let you make a copy, let you turn that into a copy of an artifact. That's a useful card, but now that's going to synergize with Liquid Metal Torque 
because you're going to be able to turn something into an artifact that wasn't in copy with Microsoft Gardens. And there's, we're going to be telling stories about that card for the next year, <laughs> it was, it would, which isn't necessarily backbreaking, but like there's two things right there that synergize together and on their own are very useful. And like those are going to add up to make a deck stronger in a way that's not readily apparent on paper. Well, and that, that narrates a really good point that Joey kind of hinted at. It used to be elf, like elf ball, for example, was a very synergistic strategy where it was all and just decks built around a specific creature type in general were kind of the the poster children for this effect where every card kind of builds upon itself. But like you said, Dana, now we're getting so many cards that play well with so many other cards. So just it's just a density thing at this point, it feels, where yeah. there's so many different options out there that you can kind of build, even if you're not playing within that certain keyword, there's stuff to support that keyword too. Yeah, it, it very much feels like the different, like once upon a time, I felt like, oh, that deck was really strong because it had a Consecrated Sphinx in it. <laughs> and today I feel like, oh, that deck's strong because it has a bunch of these micro interactions that, that all constantly work together to make the deck better. Yeah, yeah, very much. And for me, like the the for me it feels like these these small little edges that all add up with each other. So as an example of of this, for example, I have my Conrad the Grim list, which I absolutely love him, and it's the small decisions that can really accumulate a whole lot of value over time with that one. I intentionally play fewer like spells, instants and sorceries and try to play as many creatures in that deck now as I can because I want a higher density of creatures for for example, Conrad's own mill ability or any other time that I mill my because then Conrad will have a greater chance of dealing damage. But then that also plays into the fact that I have a lot of like Grim Horror specs triggers as well. So if that creature card were to die, I would get to draw more cards. This also then feeds into if there are more creature cards in my graveyard, then when they leave the graveyard, because I've been resetting or exiling or whatever, Conrad will also deal some extra damage on, on that as well. And potentially if there are creature within enters the battlefield effect, I have some mass reanimation things in there too. So more creatures also means potentially more ETB effects when I play, for example, a living death. So just the presence of a single creature card has a whole bunch of those small micro interactions, and it's all down to whether or not I chose to play some random creature versus a very powerful spell. And that's where it begins to be a difficult thing. Like, do I want to play the super big, awesome, splashy, amazing new mythic sorcery that they just made? Yeah, probably. But the reality is that in some cases, a random common mana dork creature that I put into that card slot could be better for a lot of the cards in that deck instead. And that's where it becomes a very difficult choice to make when you're trying to pin this stuff down during deck building. Difficult choice to make and difficult choice to evaluate when you're trying to figure out how strong your deck is, <laughs> or at least trying to explain to other people or even have them evaluate it, oh. particularly if they're a newer player. like That's where it gets tricky. You can hand someone a deck list or even hand them your entire deck to look at. And if, if they're a newer player, that might look like a big pile of random garbage <laughs> to them. When in reality, those micro interactions make it much stronger than is, is readily apparent. One other place I've kind of really noticed this pop up is in regards to planeswalkers. Um, you know, the the question comes up every set when we get a new, you know, 20 new planeswalkers or whatever it winds up feeling like. Sure. Um, hey, is this going to be EDH playable? Like, yeah, if their planeswalkers are almost always very EDH playable. But once upon a time when we only had a few planeswalkers and they were kind of novel and they were new and people were building less synergistic decks. I routinely just encountered planeswalkers that that had nothing to do with like what the deck's theme or plan was. Even if someone had a deck built around a theme, you'd also like run into a Chandra or run into a, a Soren or something that was in their deck because it was just good. 
Today, I see way less of that as well. I almost exclusively tend to see Planeswalkers in a deck that are doing something the deck is doing. Yeah, I'll see an angel deck that's running Sarah because she makes angels. Mm. You know, you'll see an entire deck built around Chandra or something. You'll see a Planeswalker that, that, that manipulates top of the deck because the deck cares about top deck manipulation. I, I much less often than I once did do I run into Planeswalkers that are just a value piece stuck into a deck, even if you can rationalize them. Like Garuk Wildspeaker is, is, is a one of the original Planeswalkers, is still, I think, a fantastic piece of value. Being able to untap some land that taps for multiple mana, a Nick Those or, or, or a Guy's Crate or even, you know, something smaller like, like a Bounce Land is still a great piece of value. That's a really solid card. But I just don't run into it as often as I once did because people have kind of moved into running Planeswalkers that are more synergistic, either thematically or aesthetically with what their deck is doing. That's just a, been, a, been a huge change I think I've seen in the last few years. Well, I think the reason you'll see a Gaia's Cradle very much anymore, Dana, is because it's a $1,000 card. But that, <laughs> <'Cause>, right. that's, <laughs> just, that's just my opinion. I mean, even Nick knows isn't, real, isn't cheap anymore. But seriously, though, I, I think there's a few things at play there. I mean, A... Almost these days, planeswalkers feel like a liability. Almost, they granted. I know. I know some people feel that like, oh, they're life gain because they get you. You know, creatures going to attack the planeswalkers instead of you. But also, in order to really take advantage of what they're going to amplify in the deck, like there needs to be a little bit of hand holding almost for those planeswalkers to really thrive. And so, you need something to really excel in what you could be doing versus the rest of the deck because yeah. Like you said, yeah, Garrick Wildspeaker used to be a fantastic just kind of stopgap. Okay, well, like I need a 98th card. Here we go. Perfect. Whereas now the, the, the card quality and the density in the typical deck is just so much higher that you can't get by anymore on just a, a generically good card when something you might lose a couple floor points, but the ceiling is so much higher on what you could be running. Sure. I think that's also heavily at play here on why the typical planeswalker just doesn't see as much playing commander anymore. This this is very fast. Like I almost okay, I don't I, I don't know if I agree with what I'm about to say. I just want to say it. You don't know if you agree with your own thought. Okay. <laughs> well I just have to vocalize it and then it'll be outside myself and then I can evaluate it objectively instead of abstractly in my brain. Joey, like we, I said, we are a, here for your hot takes. Now just give it. <laughs> oh it's not it's not a hot take. I guess like for me, I, I feel like one of the things that maybe Dana is hinting at here and something that I might be like subscribing onto now is that it feels like we have reached some end of a quote good stuff era. And planeswalkers are certainly a big example of that because I think a planeswalker is a a classic example of a card where not every single ability might be the most relevant thing for your deck and it does feel to me that to play a planeswalker i would need every single one of its effects to be relevant at kind of any time because otherwise it feels like i'm only getting a third as much value out of this thing as i should be and like legit I think one of the only times that I can remember putting a Planeswalker into a recent deck of mine is the new Tyvar Jubilant Brawler for my Babala Saga deck, which is great, but it's because every single one of those effects that that Planeswalker has is going to be relevant. It allows me to tap my uh, activated abilities as soon as I play Babala Saga, it can untap Babala Saga with its plus one effect, and it can mill and retrieve cards out of my graveyard with its minus effect. Every single one of those is relevant, but if the minus two effect was something completely different, like, oh, your creatures get plus one or whatever, I would not want to play that card 
I, I just I, I wouldn't feel like it was necessary. And that is an interesting thing to observe about deck building is that I feel like I need every single part of the buffalo of the card to be relevant to the thing that my deck is doing. And Planeswalkers is just a, a big example of a case where it's easy to see the individual parts of the buffalo y- that you might use. I don't know if this metaphor tracks. See, Matt, this is why I said I had to say it before I know if I agree with it. D- does any of this track with you, though? <laughs> I'm getting a little lost on it, but I, I'm sure there's a nugget of wisdom somewhere there. Yes. I. I, I do like the point about the kind of end of the good stuff era. Um, and I think we can maybe circle back around that to talk about it some more after we um, end no. the first half of the show and move on Dana? to challenge the stats. We Dana. use all parts Dana. of the segue. <laughs> you guys are magical. I will never get a segue into the podcast segments ever again, apparently. But yes, yes, we can get back to talking about that idea after we do some challenging of the stats. So let's take a quick break for that. Oh, you guys. So I'm going to get things started since Dana stole the segue. I'm going to steal the first challenge. So here we go. <laughs> um, so I've been recently tinkering around with the... I, we, I got a chance to play some of the Warhammer 40k precons again recently. Super ton of fun. For some reason, I got stuck with Mono Black because that's just how the universe works. Best. But I was playing with the uh, Imotech, the Stormlord. And that deck, it does quite a few things. And one thing that I found myself really wanting was just more ramp, more ways to get to your your high end of the curve in that deck because there's some absolutely powerful things in that pre-con deck. But in order to cast those, you got to get there first. And I was thinking and looking back and, and I was like, oh, you know, some more ramp would be great, but what really would be good? A jet medallion. Sure, yeah. But then I realized, oh, jet medallion's expensive. It's a $25 card. I don't want to spend that much on a pre-con when I could just get another pre-con for almost that price. So <laughs> one card I did start leaning towards, though, is Bantu's Monument in the card. And Bantu's Monument, I don't have to tell you to be playing this card. It's already fantastic if you're playing black decks with creatures in it. Uh, it's three mana for a legendary artifact that says black creatures you cast cost one less to cast. And whenever you cast a creature spell, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. So in the typical Emotech Stormlord deck, there's a lot of artifacts, a lot of creatures, but the typical deck is playing almost 30 creatures. So when you're able to reduce the cost on a third of your deck, that's you're going to get a huge, huge impact out of that more than a charcoal diamond, more than any typical tap to add one mana type of mana rock that you're playing because you're able to use that on multiple spells every single turn, which just kind of chains everything together. I'm not currently seeing... Bantu's Monument on the page at all. It's such a powerful card. You're getting some life gain worked in there too. And compared to the typical mana rock that you're seeing in the deck, I just think that Bantu's Monument is a fantastic add because the upside is there. If you can't afford a Jet Medallion, this is a fantastic substitute. Much cheaper. It came in a recent pre-con with the Dominaria, uh, or excuse me, Dominaria United, those ones, pre-constructed decks. So If you need some sort of cheap mana rock that's going to get you a little bit of upside, you're going to synergize well with all the creatures that are in the deck, Bantu's Monument is a fantastic ad that you're not seeing on the page at all. Matt, you're playing mono black. This warms my necromantic heart so much to hear. I'm so happy. I still was turning things sideways, though. There's a lot of creatures. (laughs) <laughs> fair enough fair enough uh i'll move now to our listener submitted challenge this week and it comes to us from super fan of the show jj mickey jj wanted to point out a card that i'm pretty sure we've mentioned on a past episode but like it's still only showing up in about like 2000 decks or something like that and it's the card psychic possession oh man psychic possession it's just 
it's it's just good. I just I just really like it. Psychic possession is an aura that Dana introduced me to. You enchant it to another player. You'll skip your draw step, but whenever that player draws a card, so will you. So if your opponent is out there doing, for example, consecrated sphinx things, it'll definitely get very very fun. Um, JJ points out that Tigum Sidisi's hand is one of the commanders that is playing this card most of all. About like forty two percent of Tigum decks are playing psychic possession because Tigum already makes you skip your draw step so this is just going to be free extra card advantage but the challenge that jj wanted to put forward is that it belongs in more than just tigum decks for example a commander like Zyrus, the writhing storm which also makes your opponents draw a lot of extra cards will give you even more card draw from this thing psychic possession is just such a cool card and i don't like that it's only showing up in about 2000 decks right now this is a neat piece of work that will really make your opponents second guess how much card advantage they want want to play when you are benefiting from it so much like how are they going to cast a brainstorm when you've got a psychic possession on them you know so definitely definitely give this card a look and jj thank you so much for bringing it back to challenge the stats well uh, my challenge this week is for ivy gleeful spell thief decks ivy for those who don't remember is a two mana fairy rogue um in a Simic Colors, whenever a player casts a spell that targets only a single creature other than Ivy Gleeful Spell Thief, you may copy that spell and the copy targets Ivy. Um, I don't even necessarily know if this challenge is that amazing in terms of like generating mana because you're already in Simic Colors, you just have all of the mana already. But I ran into an Ivy Gleeful Spell Thief aura deck this week that was playing Jihira, Friend of the Forest which lets you tap tokens to create mana. And man, did it feel insane to watch this person tap their auras <laughs> sitting on all of their creatures, their token auras, for like 14 mana in a single turn. It just felt really demoralizing to be across the table from that kind of mana generation off this elf out of nowhere where you're just not expecting anything to happen. Jahira comes down and like... They just have all of the mana in the world. Wow. Uh, I don't know how many Ivy decks need that, but if you're playing an Ivy Aura deck and you want to make everyone around you just be like, what is happening right now? Jahira, Friend of the Forest, is insane in that kind of deck. Yeah, it's only in about 10% of Ivy decks right now. And um, yeah, it was crazy in that particular build. That is wonderful. I'm all about that. You know what that reminds me of is Matt's favorite card, Relic of Legends, which lets you tap your legends to produce more mana. And this is yet another way to do that because like, oh man, Matt, I feel like this is one of those things that's way up your alley. Yep, I, I'm definitely on board with this. Now, Dana, you know what? I actually kind of want to use that Jahira challenge the stats right there, that example, as another jumping off point into the discussion of synergy. And one of the things that I suppose I have the most uh, difficulty with when it comes to this. So you just named a synergy that allows all of the tokens that Ivy makes to help you by creating a bunch of extra mana. And I'm, I'm, I'm still a little bit gagged and gooped about this. Like that's really, really cool. And the upside of that is that it has the potential to produce a much significantly higher amount of mana than other cards might do in that card slot. The potential downside, of course, is that Jahira might land at a point where you haven't gotten to make any tokens with Ivy at all, and so then she wouldn't actually be able to do a whole lot for you. And that, to me, is where 
the thing is most difficult when it comes to cool synergy stuff is choosing between just you know a cultivate or some other like random ramp spell that you know is going to work basically 100 of the time versus a card that could have even more upside if things all line up the way that hopefully your deck is designed to make them all line up that to me is the the crux of it is like how do I find what what is the what goes into my choice about which of those I'll run in that card slot to like get the security of knowing whether it's going to happen or the synergy of something bombastic that is even more than I could have dreamed if all goes well. And I don't know, I guess I wanted to open the floor to what informs your choices for that if you have a process or if it's just gut feeling or I don't know, whatever, however you all go about that. I mean, I would probably argue that it's if it's almost to 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 steal this phrase from Dana, it's more art than science at this point. It's more testing things out, getting a feel for it. Sometimes I, I you all know how much I hate gold fishing, but just checking and just kind of building a mock scenario with a couple other decks and checking it out. But there's no tried and true way, at least in my experience, for how to pull this off and how to find that answer. It's go with it. You usually have a good idea, but if it doesn't work out, then then trying something else. Yeah, we talked a little bit about in the episode we did where we talked about my Ardenesior deck, how much I dislike cards that don't perform for me. For me, and <laughs> sure. that would be an example. Where, like I, I would only run that Jahira card in a in a um, IV deck that was very heavily focused on auras. So mm-hmm. I almost always would have something that tapped the Jahira, and if I didn't, it was because things had gone so catastrophically bad that it didn't matter if I drew Jahira at a bad point in the game. If I had no auras to tap to it, I was the game was already lost, so it didn't matter. Sure. Um, so I think that's I, I think you're right. When you remove a couple dominoes from the chain, the whole chain falls apart. But I think um the the other side of that is maybe if a couple dominoes removed from the chain and the whole thing falls apart, you're you are out of luck anyway, right? Like that you were gonna be screwed no matter what. I I think the and, and I think the upside of it is when you have a bunch of I don't know if mediocre is the right word, but like not splashy pieces in your deck that all work well together. I do think it's much harder to take the deck apart. I, I think it's much, if, if you remove that Jahira from your deck, well, you just removed a ridiculous amount of ramp, but Ivy still is going to have a bunch of auras spread around and doing a bunch of gross things. You just removed the upside. Whereas when like when you take that Consecrated Sphinx out of someone's deck, you're hitting them for a pretty significant amount of mana that they probably were relying on to be able to draw cards. I, I feel like removing the good stuff piece probably impacts the deck a little bit more than removing what's probably a cheaper to cast, much more replaceable cog in the larger machinery. Well, and, and two, I experimenting with what you're taking out too. I, Dana, I, I know that you you recently made a joke about how um, if a card disappoints you, you you send it to to the firing squad. Basically, <laughs> right. making sure you're not it gets giving, benched. Yeah, make, yeah, it gets benched. Whatever you want to call it, making sure you're not giving up on cards until you've at least gotten to see them a couple times too. Um, yes, there's always going to be that catastrophic. No card was going to get me out of the situation, but this card's getting the blame for it. Mm. You want to make sure you're not evaluating your entire process on one scenario where it was a no-win situation to begin with. That's one thing I, I've seen players do before, and I I guess general deck building advice is don't let the worst situation you can dream of be the basis for how you're judging cards in your deck. 
Sure, 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 sure. Now, I, I'm also curious about this. Like, we've discussed a card that fills the uh, role of a mana advantage card, but, like, there are other categories out there. Board wipes and pinpoint removal effects, card draw, just aggro in general. Are there certain types of those card roles where you would feel more willing to take a risk on a card that could have a high upside, or... Are there times where you'd be like, no, I'm going to go with a safe standby that I know is always going to deliver at a certain rate rather than try something that could wind up not working some part of the time? Like, Matt, are there any categories that you're more lenient with or more restrictive about when it comes to that kind of thing? I think this category probably is where I do the most experimenting in my own personal experience. I recently talked about how Asterian's Thirst and a plus one plus one counters deck over just a typical go for the throat or whatever else you could be putting there. Mm -hmm. This has the most space I believe for exploration in that uh, to to add these, you know, maybe you're paying an extra mana or two, but you're getting immense upside that's going to play within that specific strategy of the deck. I love looking for the cards that fill this spot in the utility role, for example, but play in with what I'm trying to do and add. They they synergize well with the rest of the deck and, and what it's trying to do. I, I think almost any slot, I, th I think you can find room for that. There are definitely going to be exceptions. Matt mentioned Asterion's Thirst. Um, am I going to remove Swords to Plowshares or Path to Exile from like in an Orzhov deck for Asterion's Thirst? Probably not. But you know what I will remove? That third or fourth piece of removal that I would otherwise run. That, you know, Hero's Downfall or Dismember or something that you're like, that's just a genuinely excellent piece of of creature removal, but Asterion's Thirst has got more upside in my deck. So like that's where you're gonna you're gonna pull out those like third or fourth tier cards, I think, to put in the ones that synergize. There, there's a couple that just, I, I think, are, are kind of irreplaceable because they are so crazy busted. But I think there's room for that kind of thing everywhere. There's, you know, I, I, I am not shy about how much I love Knight's Whisper. It's a great card. One of my favorite things to do in a deck is pay two life and draw two cards. Yeah. Um, but if I'm playing a, a, like a Rakdos treasure deck, like my Jerry deck, I will absolutely pull out Knight's Whisper and have pulled out Knight's Whisper for some of those red draw kind of spells that make treasures. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because that feed that that is a, its own version of a feedback. Yeah. And I've seen you chain those things together so brilliantly in that deck, and it's mm -hmm. not annoying at all. I promise. Um, <laughs> it's, it's very, very good. And you've got the artifacts entering, and that causes yeah, oh my god, it's absolutely great. So yeah, no, that absolutely makes a lot of sense. And this is the thing that I'm trying to find my balances on because I have felt lately that I want to play more of those cards that are situationally good but do produce a just a backbreaking swing if and when the situation arises to linger on plus one counters for a little bit for example the card selfless squire that one doesn't always work that's the four mana one one when it enters you prevent all combat damage that would be dealt to you and when you prevent damage it gets a bunch of plus one counters and like my plus one counter deck is usually kind of the beat down itself so it's not always being attacked so i've taken that card out over time and every time i look at my maybe board i'm just like but i miss you but <laughs> but i miss you i just I, <laughs> I mean matt you like clever fogs like i'm sure you've got to feel that and like it isn't always good there are plenty of times there were plenty of games where that card didn't do anything in my hand but i do kind of still miss the the games where like this could be exactly the thing that i need to do a huge blowout and it has synergy with the rest of the deck doing all those plus one counter things so like mm -hmm. how do i decide between just a fog or a removal spell or or i don't know some some easy thing that i know is going to work 100 of the time versus this one very specific case that could work really great in these certain scenarios and it's hard to choose between those is all i'm saying yeah i i've had tons of opportunities to to make this well is it a this or is it a that type of 
situation. I, I know when we recently played all together uh, my Omnath Locus of Rage deck, I won because I had to traverse the Outlands in there. And any other ramp spell, like I, I used to play Sky Shroud Claim, for example, or any number of other high mana cards, but traverse the Outlands, that synergizes well with me typically having a board full of very large creatures. So I'm able to get exactly that many lands, which then kind of blew up. So Traverse the Outlands being able to grab more lands because it had that upside and that synergistic mm. kind of relationship with my commander, I was able to win the game because that had just enough lining up over the card that it replaced where, yeah, it was just a little bit more explosive. Maybe like you said, Joey, it didn't have the the higher floor because sometimes Traverse the Outlands just does nothing. Mm -hmm. But when it does something, it does a lot. And that often makes it worth, at least in this specific situation, makes it worth running for me in that deck. The one thing I've kind of found I, I, I've done here is those kind of synergistic cards, I tend to, they tend to make me want to run more of a specific effect than I might normally run to. Um, if I'm playing a, you know, green plus one counters deck or something, um, Inspiring Call is a very solid card but I'm probably not going to replace Heroic Intervention with it because that's card's insane. <laughs> but, yeah. it, but but normally I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't run two of those effects because I just don't have enough room for it. Well, Inspiring Call is so good in a plus one's counter deck, I might not replace Heroic Intervention, but I would probably run both and and do in my one green plus one's counter deck. So like, th that's one of the things I've noticed those kind of synergistic things tend to make me do as they, they, they make me want to run more of the thing mm. than maybe necessarily just replacing the thing. Okay. That okay. Yeah, I can I can see that it has a different demand on the density of certain categories in your deck than you are usually used to. I I can see that opening up the floor quite quite a bit. Um, although even that is still difficult. Like you know, when I look <laughs> yeah. at any card, I'm like, oh, why not both? And then I see that my deck list is 120 cards in it, and I'm just like, ah, how do I choose? Uh, um, how, how many of us have finished all our deck changes from the Phyrexia All V One set yet? None of us. <laughs> there's, right? There's a lot of demands on slots and decks these days, for sure. Yes, and Dana, that will also still be true in like three weeks from now because I still right. won't know when the next set comes out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, for me, the thing when it comes to this nebulous thing called synergy, I find myself most caught between like my willingness to take a leap of faith, quote unquote. Um, and it comes to some of these choices between like a thing that I know is going to deliver versus a thing that could deliver, but might not always. So in my again, I guess I'm still lingering on plus one counters deck. Um, I have absolutely used cards like Ristic Study and Sylvan Library because I know for sure that those are some of the best card advantage things that I could use to consistently make sure that I am drawing some cards. They're just classics of the genre. We all know what they are. They're really, really good at that. But there are some other cards. For example, there's the card Blood Tracker, which is a vampire creature that when it leaves the battlefield, if it had counters on it, you draw that many cards. And I'm I'm sitting here like that has the potential to draw me like ten cards though, and I'm kind of feeling myself pulled back more towards those big and splashy type of things as opposed to the old faithfuls, as opposed to the Sylvan Libraries, which it's just like trying to balance can I pull that kind of thing off and that would be very exciting so I'm torn between do I use these cards that will facilitate the deck doing a thing at all versus these cards that 
are, are big and splashy and that make me really love the, the deck in the first place. And that is the choice for me. That for me is the, the problem of synergy, I guess, is like, I don't want to play those good stuff cards because of a potential to do something great, but also those cards that have the greatest amount of potential could also fall flat on their face sometimes. And that is where I find the choices that I'm making nowadays uh, becoming the most difficult. Well, no, and it does make threat evaluation tricky um, for your opponents and, and for you as well. Um, you know, we had a game on stream, uh, 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 cat Twitch.tv slash EDHRECcast for you, Dana. Yes. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Nailed it. Um, with Craig Blanchett. Um, in fairly early, and I think it was the first game, Craig dropped the Consecrated Sphinx. We keep talking about Consecrated Sphinx tonight. Um, and and I copied it at least at one point. And at one point, I think it got reanimated and I made a copy of it again. And so, like, the first, I don't know, like half a dozen turns of that deck were, or the game were revolved around removing Consecrated Sphinxes. Yeah. Um, that was really easy to see. Like, no one wanted a Consecrated Sphinx to sit around under anyone's control for an extended period of time. Um, the threat assessment for that kind of stuff is pretty basic. It gets way more nebulous when you're dealing with some of the synergistic stuff because it's it's just difficult, particularly if you don't know what that person's deck is, to figure out <laughs> which one of those pieces is going to interact with which one of these pieces to cause you a giant problem one turn from now. Well, and, and I remember several times over and over again, I've seen people play an Atali and attack and, and reveal cards from your decks specifically, Dana, where... They were flipping over these cards that were absolutely worthless to the average player because <laughs> your, your cards only work with each other. Sure, that, that right. your, your cards get so specific yeah. when you're playing, when you're relying on a very synergistic deck that people, nobody cares to cast a briber on you because they know that they're going to get a creature that has nothing to do <laughs> with what they might be trying to do and just isn't going to be generically good enough that it's worth targeting you with those types of spells. Absolutely has happened. I have a good friend locally um, who I play quite a bit who has a Gonti Lord of Luxury deck. Uh -huh. And he specifically, like, every game is like, I'm not targeting Dana with this. <laughs> <laughs> like, he just doesn't want, like, that, no, he just has no interest in any of the garbage in my decks. So for sure, like, it, it there's that's an advantage too. Like, it makes much more difficult for people to take your pieces and have them be meaningful in their deck. This has also been an issue when I was building that Tasha deck as well, because she steals spells from your opponents. And it's just like, ah, gee, I'm sure excited to have stolen that spell that makes all of your lands do things in this deck that doesn't do anything with lands. It's just like, thanks, Matt, for your land card. I didn't I didn't really need it. Thanks, Dana, for your card that only works if I have treasures in play. I don't currently. It's just like, yeah, it does, definitely does present conundrums because I can't take any individual stick, like the bundle thing that you were saying earlier. They all work within the context of each other. Yeah, and, and I, sometimes even color comes into a factor with that. I, I was playing a game this weekend where a friend of mine was playing a game where or a deck where he steals a lot of cards from his opponents. Well, he was playing Esper colors, but everybody else was playing green and and or in red in their deck. So there were no lands for him to steal. There were no spells that he could really cast. So it was just a bunch of stuff that, oh, I, I'm going to not play this because it doesn't do anything for me. That often happens too, where, you know, if you're trying to get stuff that's maybe even just trying to get lands from your opponents, you can't even really use their lands. It just turns into a waste at that point. I think also, Dana, like you mentioned threat assessment, and I I think it also becomes very difficult in games to 
like it makes it harder to notice what the threat properly is on board, but also like to convince other players what the problem is on board. And it's already difficult to convince another player what the true threat is like in general. But like those big and splashy cards, like if there's just a shieldred over on one side of the table, that's a very big obvious effect that's doing stuff and it's taking up all of the attention. And that makes it very difficult to be like, oh no, the real problem is that the Prosper player has a Valakut exploration that might start doing stuff later. And like that card will probably explode later on in the game, but it's hard to like point at like, oh no, that person has two enchantments in play. And that means big stuff could happen later that will be bigger than what Shieldred is currently doing. And it, it's just hard to <laughs> hard to convey that in game. And it just, yeah, just it, the, the issue of synergy is good also <laughs> i don't know I, I a really good point to narrate i think that thought joey is uh, one of our our moderators so if you've ever watched the stream over at twitch uh chris who's one of our moderators for the discord for our patrons uh does a lot of stuff in the background but every now and then he'll sit in on a game and play with us and he has a chise deck that i like to joke that if you figure out what he's doing with that deck it's already too late because <laughs> all the pieces you look at the the typical card in the deck and, and nothing really makes sense you're like okay i don't know what that's supposed to be doing but then once everything gets established and that synergy starts playing out before your eyes then you realize oh my gosh that was the most important piece and we saw it the whole time <laughs> there are absolutely decks out there i know friend of the podcast andrew cummings that a charge counter deck that is all about putting charge counters on different things is the most powerful deck that he has and oh, right. you see all these things sitting out there and there's a crewing and a crewing you're like okay what what's the point and then when you see the point you're already dead Yes, yeah. He had a grind clock in play for ages. <laughs> if that was the Kirkash deck, right? Andrew's Kirkash deck? Kirkash, yeah. And grind clock, it's like it taps, it gets a counter, or it taps and it mills equal to the counter. Then you're like, Psh, yeah, okay. And then it turned out over the course of like the next turn, like that card didn't draw any attention at all. And then like, oh yeah, I know. Over the course of the next turns, that is the card that won the game. And it's precisely because we ignored it and we didn't, we took for granted whether or not that card could be any good. And yeah, no, it turns out when you're doing stuff, even in the modern right Kirkash deck, it does a lot of things. It was the most powerful thing it could have played. Even grind clock can be a win condition. Who yeah. knew? Yeah, absolutely. I guess, yeah, for, for me, I feel to, to kind of come back around to the whether or not it's the end of the good stuff era, I am at least feeling in my personal deck building that I am going to shy away from the old reliables and take more of the chances on the stuff that could produce a higher output because I notice myself having more fun in those moments when they do happen. And the moments that they don't happen is certainly a tragedy, but I still want to try my best at taking a chance on on those things in the future. Like I know that Smothering Tithe is really good, but I would rather take chances on the Gyre Sages of the world because those could produce more mana in my plus one counter deck, even though I know Smothering Tithe is a very, very good card. I feel like that's a direction that I'm currently taking, but I don't know that I can say that for everyone because, like, you know, those good cards are good for a reason. And I'm like, the reason that you're playing them is to make the rest of the deck work at all. So I don't know where you guys fall on that. Um, but to me, that's at least my personal era. I don't know if I can suggest just not playing Smothering Tide. That's that is tall <laughs> I mean, yeah. talk. I, I think that whatever you're doing to whatever extreme, whether you're doing it just a little bit or you're doing it throughout your entire deck, deck building process, you, I, yes, I believe that exploring synergy and, and cards that are going to align with that strategy you're trying to do in the deck, it should be something encouraged. I don't think you should abandon all it. And, and please don't think that we're saying don't play good stuff cards because that's not absolutely. We had a whole episode on that, too. Yes. Oh, right. Uh, many, many episodes ago. But 
finding those measured opportunities to find situations where, okay, I could not play Cyclonic Rift and I'm going to play Whelming Wave instead because it's still going to be a one-sided board wipe, but it costs less mana. Stuff like that. There's situations where you can experiment and and find ways to get away from maybe the, the staple of that certain situational card and find something else that's going to give you a little bit more upside, but you just have to do a little bit of digging. Well, to expand on, on Joey's point a little bit, which I, I agree with, I think the difference now is we've moved from a point where when you were running some of those synergies in your deck, you were doing it because you wanted a different experience. And I think it's now at the point where those synergies are just better than the alternative. Maybe not better than Smothering Dive. Maybe that card is, <laughs> is, is nuts. But I, like, I look back to, to, to go back to that, that, Sigarda Enchantress deck of mine. When I built that deck, I was running a bunch of um, uh, aura ramps. I was running none of the land ramp that you usually see in green. I was running all of the kind of wild growth effects that you put on lands because I I wanted to have as many enchantments and auras in the deck as possible. I was doing that because it was something I wanted for thematic purposes, even if it wasn't as powerful as as the land ramp options. Mm. Today, when we've got half a dozen or more new enchantresses and enchantress deck and the things that synergize with enchantments that's no longer the case i don't think i think running those thematic cards in that particular in, in that deck is more powerful than running a particular piece of land ramp when that wild growth can suddenly draw draw you five cards and j- change multiple things in that deck um so i i think that's kind of the the, the point i've really taken away from this is we've moved from the point where Building thematically is something you just did because you wanted to do something interesting to the point where in a whole lot of cases, it's actually stronger than the alternative. Well said. And yeah, and everyone's going to draw their line in a different place there and all for good reasons. Like Matt, like you were saying, there's no one correct way to build any of these decks. (laughs) So like, yeah, certainly hope it doesn't sound like we're saying, oh, good stuff is bad, actually, because that's super not the case. But it is interesting to find the cases where you're willing to take those leaps of faith. It's interesting to see what goes into those deck building decisions and how even the smallest choices of cards can have exponential value further down the line and how much tinkering you have to do to try and do that. So yeah, it's it's interesting stuff. It's hard to quantify. It's one of those things that the idiotrack data can't always measure, but we do measure it in our hearts. Am I being cheesy enough, Matt? Is this, is this working? <laughs> you're getting there. You're getting there. You're, you're doing pretty Gouda, but not, not cheesy enough. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I'm not allowed to segue into challenge of stats, but guys, am I allowed to segue to the closing of the episode? Is that a yes? I can't yeah. think of a cheese I, pun to make, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, there. Yes, you American. All right. That that <laughs> I feel like there. Our our podcast is like Swiss cheeses, and there's a hole, and we need to fill it with somebody uh, that can can think on their feet a little bit better than we can. That wasn't very sharp of either of you. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> I think you need to, to wrap us up here. Um, yeah. Dip us in wax, hey. ship us out. Get, get. <laughs> nice. Yeah. All right. Listeners, we would it's love to hear. Bad. We'd love to hear your, your thoughts about all of this. We've really got off the rails. We'll call this episode to a close, but get in touch with us if you've got thoughts about synergy versus good stuff kind of situations like that. Um, and fellas, if our listeners do want to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find us on the onlines? 
So you can find me on Twitter at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, we are streaming Wednesday evenings over at twitch.tv slash EDHRECcast. Uh, the, the guest list that we have on features some absolute monsters. Uh, they're always super fun to have on. So make sure you tune in every Wednesday evening at twitch.tv slash EDHRECcast. Oh, man. What about you, Dana? You can find me on Twitter at Dana Roach. You can hear me on my other podcast, CMDR Central, for at least a few more weeks. I'm writing for EDH Rec and Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDH Reccast. Oh, man. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz. And you can find the cast at EDH Reccast on all of the online socials as well. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to Cheese, I mean Chase, for assisting me with the post-production of the show. You can find them online at Manicurves. And listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH Wreck Your Deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs> <laughs>